من سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد uh, I was asked uh, by uh, Brother Safi Khan to sit in for him this evening and to speak about this topic of At-Tawbah and I've divided the topic into a number of uh, sections which I'll proceed to uh, deliver and hopefully inshallah I'll be able to give most of the topic uh, which is before us as the topic of Tawbah as we will find out in tonight's lecture inshallah ta'ala is really uh, Tawbah is Islam in its entirety and so therefore this topic cannot be properly addressed only in one lecture but needs really a series of lectures in order to cover the topic uh, fully so what I hope is at least just to touch on some of the uh, matters dealing with Tawbah uh, that we may enlighten ourselves and then pursue this topic at a future time uh, by Allah's grace the first matters that we should know is concerning the importance of a tawbah. Uh, tawbah being repentance unto Allah in the English language, and I'll give it a better definition as we proceed into the lecture. You know that the first day that a person passes through in his journey unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and likewise his final stage in life before he meets Allah, and all the stages and all the stops that one makes in his life between those beginning initial stage when he decides that he wants to fulfill the purpose of his creation which is to worship Allah and that final stop that one has at death should be one of Tawbah or repentance unto Allah Tawbah or repentance is something which a person must adhere to throughout his life it is not a one-shot deal that one does, for instance, when he first becomes a Muslim, so he repents from disbelief, from being a Jew or a Christian or a pagan, and comes into Islam, or that something does once in his life, he led a life of impiety or a life of wickedness, and now he wants to be a righteous Muslim, or something that one does before he dies, he senses that these are the final moments of his life, and therefore he wants to make amends with his Lord before he meets him. Toba is not a one-shot deal. Toba is something that one must be in throughout his life. From the day he enters into Islam, if he's a non-Muslim, or from the day he realizes that he should become a righteous human being, until that last moment of his life when his soul departs his body. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has stressed that in the Qur'an in many verses. And likewise, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has stressed that in many of his authentic narrations or ahadith. Let us contemplate this one verse in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا أَيُّهَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ Allah says, and turn in repentance to Allah, all you believers, that perhaps you may be successful with Allah. So let's think of this verse for a second and contemplate it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse in Medina. In Medina. After the Muslims left Mecca, after they had suffered the persecution for their faith in Mecca upon the hands of the pagans, after they had left their belongings and their families and made hijrah unto 
uh, this prophet city in Medina, after they have struggled and fought the disbelievers in jihad and waged war against them, at that time, at that time, no, it's okay. At that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down this verse. And also, who was he addressing when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in this verse, وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا أَيُّهَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ And turn unto Allah in repentance, all you believers, that perhaps you may be successful. Who was Allah addressing in those verses? Who were the mu'minun? Who were the believers? It was the likes of Abu Bakr. It was the likes of Umar. It was the likes of Uthman. It was the likes of Ali ibn Abi Talib. It was the likes of Aisha. It was the likes of Fatima. These were the people who Allah was addressing. So after they had preceded mankind into faith, after they had suffered the persecutions of the disbelievers, after they had made hijrah and left all their worldly possessions and went to Medina, after they fought and they struggled and waged jihad in the path of Allah, then Allah says to them, turn to Allah in repentance, believers, that perhaps... So, and the word in Arabic, لَعَلَّكُمْ is a word which means, which was translated as perhaps, meaning that it's not something which is definite. That perhaps you may be successful. So if Allah addressed the best of the creation after the Prophet, and those are the Prophet Muhammad's companions, and after they had did such great deeds for his religion, and worshipped Allah with such a level of worship, how much, much more this verse concerning us? And we haven't struggled for Islam like they have. We haven't worshipped Allah like they have. So this shows us the importance of Tawbah. Another verse which shows us the importance of Tawbah is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he says, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَتُبْ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ Allah says, and those who do not perform Tawbah, do not repent, they are a ظَالِمُونَ They are the ones who are sinful and have show injustice to their souls, to their Lord. So here Allah divides the creation two groups, a ta'ibun and a valimun. The repentful and those who are unjust. There's no third category. If you're not amongst the repentful, then by you're amongst the unjust, the valimun. And we know from the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, where he says in a authentic hadith of his, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ تُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ فَوَاللَّهِ إِنِّي لَأَتُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ فِي الْيَوْمِ أَكْثَرْ مِنْ سَبْعِينَ مَرَّةِ Oh, people, turn to Allah in Tawbah, for by Allah, I repent unto Him in a day more than 70 times. And this is who? The Prophet ﷺ, the best of the creation. Indeed, the Prophet's companions would count that the Prophet said when he used to sit with them in their gatherings, that they would count him seeking Allah's forgiveness and repenting to him, sometimes in a gathering, more than a hundred times. In other words, like we're now gathering, you know, and so forth, and the Prophet would gather with his companions. Well, in a gathering like this, he would repeat, and they would hear him more than a hundred times. So the point is, is that those who repent unto Allah, they perhaps might be the successful. And those who do not repent unto Allah, they are those who are unjust. And the reason why they're unjust is because they're ignorant of themselves. They think of themselves as righteous and pious. And yet they're ignorant of the soul, of the, the sins that their soul 
has incurred. And likewise, they're ignorant of their Lord because they do not realize that their Lord, just as He is the most merciful, He's also shadidul iqab, that He is severe in punishment. So for this reason, they're unjust, Lanimun. And Toba, the reality of it, I mean, somebody's going to say, well, then what is this reality of this important concept that we have now understood from the Quran and the Sunnah? The reality of a Toba is to leave the path of those who have, Allah has incurred, uh, have, uh, the path of those who have incurred Allah's wrath, and they are the Jews, and Maghubi alayhim, and the path of those who have gone astray, Allah and they are the Christians, and to come back to the straight path. And this is the meaning of your prayer, one of the meanings of your dua that you make in every single salah. Guide us to the straight path. The path of those who have received your blessings, and that is the path of Muhammad and his companions. Not the path of those who have incurred your wrath, and they're the Jews, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as, as the Prophet sallam, said in, in the hadith of Sahih Bukhari, the Maghdubi alayhim are the Jews. And not those who have gone astray, and they're the Christians, as the Prophet sallam, said in that same hadith which I just mentioned, which is in Sahih al-Bukhari. So when a person slips off that sirat al-mustaqeed, as everyone does, because all of us sin, and all of us become hikmata'ala at times, a tawbah means that we leave the path of the Jews and the path of the Christians, and we return back to that straight path. The path of the Jews, in, in brief, because it's not a, uh, the place now to expound on that, is to know the truth and not follow it. Because the Jews know the truth and yet they refuse to follow it. And the path of the Christian is not to be aware of the truth, to seek good, but because one is ignorant of the truth, he therefore does not follow the correct sharia, the correct way of life. This is the reality of a tawbah. It's to return back to the straight path. From the path of those who have incurred Allah's wrath, the Jews and those who resemble the Jews, and the path of those who are the Christians and whoever resembles the Christians. And its conditions, when one wants to make tawbah unto Allah, one must fulfill certain conditions. The first condition is one must be remorseful. One must be remorseful. The fact he realizes, or she realizes, that he lived a life, or that he had committed a sin, and therefore one must be remorseful unto Allah for that sin. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith, and nedmu tawbah, that remorse is repentance. This hadith is reported by Ibn Majah and Al-Hakim and others. The second condition that one must fulfill when he's making tawbah is what is known as al-iqla' which means that one must drop that sin. One cannot repent for a sin which he's doing. For instance, one cannot say, Oh Allah, I repented to you for not praying and yet still continue not to pray. That doesn't fulfill the repentance unto Allah. But one must be remorseful for what has passed. He must drop that sin. And also this other condition, which is very important, which is al-azima and la which means that one has that firm resolution, that firm will never to go back to that sin again. Never to go back to that sin again. So therefore, when one repents to Allah, he must fulfill these three conditions. That he must be remorseful for what he did in the past. That he must also drop that sin and forego it immediately. And also he must have that firm resolution never to return to that sin again. 
Now these are in terms of the sins that deal with a person and his Lord. But as far as those sins which deal with you and another human being, you must also make reparations for that sin. And I'll give you an example. When a person doesn't pray, he must then repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that sin. And that is by feeling remorsefulness to Allah for not praying, by dropping that sin of not praying, and by never returning back to that sin again. But when the sin deals with a person, another human being, like you took somebody's money, you spoke ill to a person, you cheated someone, your repentance is not complete until you return back that right to the person. So until you return that money back to the person you've taken. Because even though you might have repented to Allah for that sin, you still need to repair the right of that human being. Because here the sin deals has two aspects, a right unto Allah and then a right unto that human being which you have harmed. And therefore if you speak ill about somebody behind his back, which is known as al-ghiba, or if you lie about somebody behind his back, which is al-namima, you cannot repent from that sin to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unless you also repair that with that person by either asking that person to forgive you, if you feel that that person is a type of person who is mature enough that he will forgive you and will not result into a more evil uh, relationship between you and him, or by repairing that by speaking well about that person, by trying to praise that person as you used to backbite him when he, and speak ill about him, but now you speak well about him in order to balance out what you did. So therefore, repentance unto Allah consists of those three conditions. The first condition is that one must feel remorse to Allah for his sinfulness. The second condition is that one must drop that sin and, and not continue to do that sin. And third thing, he must have that firm resolution never to return to that sin again. And when that sin deals with a person who is uh, a right of a human being, if that sin deals with the right of a human being, there's also a fourth condition that he does a reparation to that human being by returning him that right, whether it's money, whether it's if he spoke ill about the person, or whatever, depending upon the issue. Now, what's important now that we just briefly discuss, when a person sins, what should be his feeling? I mean, when a person now sins, how should he feel about his sin? The first thing is that he should, the first thing that should come to his mind is that he should reflect upon Allah's command and Allah's prohibition. And he should realize that here he has either forsaken a command which Allah has given him, ordered him, or he has done something which Allah has forbidden him from. So this is the first thing a person should feel. And likewise, he should look and reflect to Allah's reward and his punishment. That now that he has lost the reward by leaving that command or by doing that prohibition, and also he has opened himself for gaining Allah's punishment. So, and third, he must look at and he must reflect upon Allah's mercy with him. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not smite him down, did not punish him at that moment. But gave him an opportunity to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore he should take that opportunity to amend his ways. And turn unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and beseech Allah and petition Allah for those sins. The other thing we should remember is that when a person does a sin, it is required from him immediately to repent from that sin. The concept that some Muslims behold 
the belief that some Muslims uh, the understand or have that one may delay his repentance. In other words, well, I'm still young, and therefore I can make my amends when I get older. Now I want to take care of business. When I get 40 or 50 or 60, then I'll become a righteous person. Or I did something wrong, and I'll repent for it in the evening. You did something wrong in the morning, I'll repent for it in the evening. That in itself is a sin. One must repent from the sin as easily as he does that sin. And the more he delays from repenting from that sin then that sin increases for the delay uh, in that. And that's something which is very important to know. When one does a sin, he uh, speaks ill about something, or he's not good to, not righteous to his parents, or he leaves one of the obligations Allah has given him. If he delays his repentance, that delay in that period is also sinfulness. So therefore he multiplies his sins through his delay. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا أَيُّهَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ And turn unto repentance unto Allah. So this in the Arabic language is, uh, the verb is in the, uh, what is known as Sigat al-Amr, which means it's a command. And it's understood then from the Arabic grammar and from the Arabic language that the command means that it must be done immediately and does not allow for what is known as a tarakhi, or which means that you can delay at, at your discretion. But rather it's an order that must be fulfilled immediately. And that is why the scholars have deduced from this that to delay one's repentance is uh, in itself a sin. But it's important that we also know the difference between, as we're talking about Tawbah, the difference between Al-Istighfar and the Tawbah. For instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ ثُمَّ ثُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ إِنَّ رَبِّي رَحِيمٌ وَجُودٌ And this is the statement of the Prophet Shu'ayb in the Qur'an. But the Prophet Shu'ayb in the Qur'an commands his people, he says, وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ ثُمَّ تُوبُوا إِلَيْهِ إِنَّ رَبِّي رَحِيمٌ وَجُودٌ So Shu'ayb tells his people to seek forgiveness, to seek al-istighfar from your Lord, and then turn unto him into repentance. So this shows that there's a difference between al-istighfar and there's a difference between, which means to seek forgiveness, and there's a difference between repentance or tawbah. So what is this difference? And istighfar means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes that sin, effaces it, and also removes any evil effects which come from that sin. And those evil effects are two types. That you do another sin, or that you're punished for that sin. And this is something that I, we need to sort of spend a few moments to discuss. When a person does a sin... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can punish him in two ways. And sometimes Allah punishes him in both ways. One way of punishing him is that by him doing a sin, it allows, Allah allows him to do more sins. In the sense that Allah removes his protection from that person. So therefore, sinfulness leads to greater sins. And those greater sins lead to even greater sins. And we can think of maybe an example, okay? A person, for instance, might do a sin of consciously, of sitting with a person from the opposite sex in private. This is something which is forbidden because we know the Prophet ﷺ said what? That whenever a man and a woman are together, Satan is a third. And the understanding of this hadith, of course, is for when a man and a woman are together who are not supposed to be together. Right? Not like a mother and her son or a father and his daughter or a husband and wife or brother and sister. But the intent here is for two people who should not be together uh, from opposite sex. That Satan is a third. 
So when a person does this sin consciously, right, he then opens himself that Allah removes his protection from him. And so therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might lead him by deluding him into other sins. In the sense the person will sit with a person from the opposite sex and he will see that nothing happened. So therefore, he won't think of it as, as a big deal. And then that can lead into another sin. And that can lead into another sin until finally he might commit an act of immorality. So here, one sin leads to another sin. And the other way of punishment, of course, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punishes him in this world by either he becomes ill or some benefit is uh, removed from him, some blessing which was intended for him, or some harm comes unto him, or in the hereafter he can be punished either in the grave or, you know, in, on the day of judgment and so forth. So the point is, is that when you ask an istighfar unto Allah, when you say, Rabbi when you find this word an istighfar, it means not only that the sin is covered, but also that any evil effects are removed from that sin. In the sense that neither it leads you, that you, that sin does not lead you to do other sin, and also that, that, that sin is not punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's when you say, Oh Allah, you're al-ghafoor. Means, Oh Allah, I've sinned, so therefore do not let this sin of mine lead me to other sins, and do not punish me for this sin. So it means not just wiping away the sins, but also wiping away the evil effects of the sins. And tawbah, on the other hand, means to protect you now from future sins. So when these two words are linked together in the Qur'an, like in this ayah, or in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, when he says, I seek forgiveness for Allah and I repent unto Him, the difference, there's a difference in meaning now. And istighfar means that you ask Allah to wipe away that sin, to protect you from the evil effects of that sin, and which I've explained is either that it leads you to other sin or you're punished for that sin. And likewise, a tawbah here would mean that Allah prevents you from doing other sins in the future. But when... A tawbah or an istighfar are uh, mentioned by itself in a verse or an ayah, a verse of the Quran or a hadith of Prophet then they become interchangeable for one another. Also Allah in the Quran says, He mentions a type of tawbah which is known as the tawbah to nusul. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in a verse, He says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, tubu ilallahi tawbah to nusuha. He says, O you who believe, O believers, Turn unto a repentance unto Allah, which Allah says is a nusuh, repentance. So what does the word nusuh mean? Well, the word nusuh in Arabic means that which is pure. It has no impurities in it. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us to turn unto Him with a pure repentance. Which means there are some repentance which are not pure, and there's a repentance which is pure. So what is that pure repentance? The pure repentance is one which has three matters to it that it is a repentance that includes all sins. In the sense that you repent from every single sin that you do. A complete and total repentance. Also, it is a sense of the, uh, uh, the pure repentance, or tawbah nusuha, is one that the soul then is so resolute that it has no doubt that you'll ever do that sin again. In other words, you're certain you'll never do that again. I mean, for instance, when you repent sometimes, you sometimes fear in your mind that perhaps you'll fall into that sin again. So in other words, there's some sort of doubt because that repentance wasn't resolute, it wasn't firm. But this atoba nasuha is that which is such that you are so certain that you will never return back to that sin again. And the first and the final condition is that that repentance comes at a time when there is no reason or motivation for you to have repented. In the other, in the other sense, I'll give you an example maybe to make it clear. Let's say a person was dealing with some illegal 
uh, form of making money. He was making money through usury, through riba. He was maybe cheating people in buying and selling. Uh, he was doing any type of transaction which has been forbidden by the Sharia. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because of these transgressions, decrees that his business is wiped out and he loses all his money. When he repents at this point, he says, Oh Allah, I've learned my lesson and I've repented for those sins. This is not that a tawbah in the surah or that pure tawbah. Because now that money which he used to do with, he no longer has. So therefore, it's not that type of pure repentance. But if he was to repent, for instance, during the time when he still had the ability to do those sins, then this type of tawbah is of a greater degree. And this is known as a tawbah in the surah, which Allah asks us to do. But I think probably more, most important... Uh, how much time did you do before? So, normally when do you end these? Normally end at what time do you which is when do you pray? 9 o'clock? 9 o'clock, okay. So I think what's important also that we have to understand that the different types of sins that one must repent from. In other words, our discussion thus far has just been upon repentance and what, does, what is the reality of repentance and what are the conditions of repentance and the difference between the pure repentance, the Tawbah and the Suha, and the repentance which is uh, not necessarily pure. But what is, I think, more important and what I'd like to discuss for the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so, is what are the sins that one must repent from? In other words, the Sharia has classified different categories of sins. And there are 12 categories of sins which we know from the Quran and the Sunnah. And it's important that we are aware of these sins in order to repent from them. Because you cannot imagine a person who's going to repent for sinfulness if he doesn't know what is sin in the first place. And you cannot imagine that a person will mend his ways in his life if he doesn't know in the first place he's doing something wrong. So what are those different categories of sins which one must repent from so that we can become repentant unto Allah? The first thing we should know is that sins are of two types. There are those sins which are known as al-kaba'ir, which are the major sins, and there are those sins which are known as as sagair or the minor sins. And this is mentioned in the Quran itself and also in the Sunnah and also by the consensus of the scholars of this Ummah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إن تجتنبوا كبائر كبائر ما تنهون عنه نكفر عنكم سيئاتكم. Allah subhanahu wa taala says if you leave the kabair, the major of what we have forbidden you, we will then forgive your minor deeds, not your major deeds. نكفر will expiate your minor deeds. So here Allah differs, makes a distinction between two types of sins. He says if you do not do the major sins, then I will expiate your minor sins. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describing the believers, he says, That is those people who, the believers are those who avoid these major sins, and al-fawahish, which is all types of immorality, especially immorality dealing with sexual matters, And al-lamam means, literally in Arabic, something which is close to something. So here it means those sins which are close to major sins, but are not major sins in and of themselves. And the Prophet ﷺ has said, الصلواتُ الخمس, the five prayers, والجمعة إلى الجمعة, and the Friday prayer to the Friday prayer, ورمضان إلى رمضان, and fasting the month of Ramadan, and fasting the month of Ramadan that comes after that, مكفرات لما بينهن إذا شنبت الكبائر, إذا شنبت الكبائر. Allah has said, that if you pray your five prayers, and you pray your Jum'ahs, and you fast Ramadan, this will remove your sin, all the sins that occur between those, Times, so long as you avoid the kabair, 
the major sins. So what are these major sins that we're supposed to avoid? Well, if you look at the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, you find him that he has mentioned major sins, many sins as being major sins. He has mentioned that a shirk, or to worship others with Allah, is a major sin. He has mentioned that to be disobedient to one's parents is a major sin. He has mentioned that immorality in sexual matters are major sins. He has mentioned that to flee from the battlefield is a major sin. But some believers, some Muslims feel that because the Prophet has said in some hadith that al-kaba'iru sab'a, that the major sins are seven, that sins, major sins are only seven or nine or eleven in this. And as the Prophet's companions understood, they said the major sins are whatever, any sin which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed that it has a punishment in this world, a had one of these those obligatory punishments, like stealing, like immorality in sexual matters, zina, like drinking, uh, intoxicants, these all have hadud, punishments in this world. And likewise, any sin in where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned that sin and also he has mentioned that he will curse the people for that. So when the Prophet said that Allah curses those uh, women who make tattoos on people or who tattoo themselves or who pluck the eyebrows, the hair of their eyebrows or have that, those hairs plucked from them or who make gaps in their teeth in order to beautify themselves. This was a practice which was done in Arabia in the past, that they used to make gaps in their teeth to beautify themselves. That, when the Prophet ﷺ cursed these people, and he said, Allah curses these, these become all major sins. Because there's a, the word la'an is mentioned in that hadith. And likewise, if the sin mentions that Allah's anger, Allah's ghadab, is upon that sin, this becomes a major sin. And likewise, if that sin mentions that Allah will punish those people, like when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, there are three people who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will neither talk to on the day of judgment nor look at them, and that they will have a severe punishment. All those matters in that hadith become major sins then. So therefore, if you want to know what a major sin is, any sin which has a, had a punishment prescribed by cutting of the limbs or whipping, that's a major sin. Any sin in which you find that, you find that Allah curses that person, where it says that Allah has cursed, or the Prophet says, I curse so-and-so. That is a major sin. Any sin which says that Allah is angered with that person, or anything that says that Allah will punish such a person, these are all major sins. And that is why Ibn Abbas, the Prophet's companion, said, the major sins are closer to 700 in number than they are to seven. So there are many major sins, and that should be perhaps a topic uh, that can be discussed at some later date. What are these sins which are considered major sins? But in general, we can classify them into 12 categories, and that's what I'd like to briefly touch on for the remaining part of the lecture. The first category, of course, is al-kufru, or disbelief. And al-kufr is of many types in the Qur'an. One type, of course, is that which is means to deny the truth of the revelation. This is the sin of the Christians, of the Jews, of the pagans, of the atheists, when they deny the revelation in the first place. This is the one type of kufr or disbelief. Because these people don't, in the first place, believe that the Prophet Muhammad is truly the messenger of Allah. And that's why they refuse to say the testimony of faith. And that is why they refuse to enter into his sharia and to obey his commands. So this is the first type of, 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 of sin, which is kufr. And one type of it is that you deny the truthfulness of the message. The second type is that you do not deny the truthfulness of the message, but you refuse to enter into the message. And this is known as al-kufr istikbar ma'at tasdiq. And this is like the disbelief of the, prophet, of, of the disbelief 
of the, uh, of the devil, of Satan, of Iblis. Iblis did not deny that Allah commanded him to prostrate to Adam. But he refused out of arrogance. Some people will come to you and they say, yes, I believe that Muhammad Wasallam is a messenger of Allah, but I refuse to uh, enter into his religion. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the Jewish rabbis in Medina during the time of the Prophet as what? That they recognize him, that he's a messenger of Allah, as they recognize their own son. For those of you who have your children with you tonight at this gathering, would you be confused at the end of the evening, which was your kid and, and which wasn't, so you take the wrong kid home in your car? That's impossible. So the Jewish rabbis in Medina recognized that the Prophet Muhammad was the Prophet that Allah promised to send to mankind in the previous scriptures as a person recognizes, or as they recognize their own children, as they know that this is their sons and daughters as opposed to somebody else's sons and daughters. But yet they refuse to accept the message. Why? Because of arrogance. Also another type of kufr is what is known as kufr al-i'rab, the kufr of, uh, of not taking a position. Like some people, you come to them, maybe at work, or on or whatever, your neighbors, and you present to them the religion of Islam, and they don't take a position, neither positively or negatively. They say, well, I don't have time for religion. In other words, they just turned away. This is a third type of kufr that one must repent from. And the fourth type of kufr is the kufr of doubt. When a person doubts concerning the reality, I, I doubt, for instance, somebody might say, if I should only worship Allah, perhaps, Jesus might be God, so I should maybe go to the mosque and also go to the church on Sundays. Or I'm somewhat hesitant about the Day of Judgment. Is it there or not? This is all kufr which one must repent from. And the fifth type of kufr is the kufr of hypocrisy, of any fact. When one says that he's a Muslim, but in his heart he doesn't believe. And this might, of course, might not be common here in the United States, because uh, I mean, there's no pressure to become Muslims, but you might imagine in an Islamic society, one might feel the pressures in the sense that he doesn't believe in his heart, but, in order, in order, in order, but he cannot openly say that because he would be afraid that the society would reject him. So he testifies by his tongue. He says, yes, I'm a Muslim and I believe in so forth, but in his heart he really does not believe. So the first type of sin that one must repent from is the sin of kufr. And as I mentioned, it has those five categories to it. There's another type of kufr which is mentioned in the Quran Sunnah and it means to be, uh, to show, to be uh, ungrateful or ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is known as kufr al-ni'mah. It does not reach the degree of the first type of kufr, which throws a person outside of the fold of Islam. And this is like the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ said, he has kafara, who, who does attribute himself to other than his father. It was a practice in the pagan of uh, the pagans in Arabia that, for instance, if you came from a tribe which was not so, uh, had a lowly status in the society, you would say, well, I'm not from this tribe, I'm from a certain tribe, and this is my father, in order to raise your stature in this society. So the Prophet ﷺ said that he has kafara, whoever does this, who attributes himself to other than his father. This type of kufr mentioned in the hadith is not like that kufr which I was mentioning those five categories, but it means to be ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is a sin, but it's not like that type of kufr. So kufr in the Quran Sunnah has two uh, meanings to it. There's a major kufr which throws one outside of Islam, and those are the five categories I mentioned. And there is this minor kufr which means to be ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second type of sin or class of sin that one must repent unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that of a shirk. And a shirk is something which unfortunately many Muslims have fallen into and they don't realize it. A shirk means in general 
to give unto any human being or any creature that which only belongs unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like prayers. Like those who pray to the saints. Many years ago, uh, I, myself, and uh, my friend, uh, Brother Idris, we used to live in Medina, in the Prophet ﷺ city. And one time, uh, we were standing outside of the Prophet's uh, mosque, after Salat al-Isha, and we were talking in, in English, and a gentleman came to us, and he was surprised to see us talking in English and wearing the garments of the Arabs. So he asked us to where you're from, and we said we we're from the United States. And then he asked me what was that book that I had in my hand. I said, it's a book which is discussing a matter of Islamic belief that we should only pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not give our prayers to anyone else. And then the gentleman became very angry. And he said, what do you mean? I just left from the Prophet Muhammad's grave and I asked the Prophet to forgive me of my sin and I asked the Prophet to uh, give me bounties in this world and I asked the Prophet this and that and so forth. And then, of course, we tried to discuss with him and tell him that this is a major sin and he just will throw you out of Islam unless you repent from this because prayers are only answered by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the point with mentioning this story is that in the Islamic world you find that this sin of shirk of worshipping uh, saints and worshipping or the worshipping the Prophet sallam, is well rooted unfortunately and that's why there's not a major city in the Islamic world a major city in Africa or Asia from Morocco to Indonesia except that you will find they have some sort of saint who they'll travel to his grave and then preach that saint and petition that saint to answer their prayers. And this is a sin that Allah does not forgive. In Allah la yaghfir and yushrakadihi wa yaghfir ma'aduna dhalika li Allah will not forgive the sin of making shirk with him. But he will forgive any other sin to whoever he pleases. So from among the sins that we must repent from is the sin of shirk. That we should not pray to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدِ اللَّهِ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا Allah says in the Quran, and verily the mosques, the places of worship, belong to Allah. So we should not call anyone else. Ahada means no one else. Neither prophet, nor angel, nor righteous man with Allah. And likewise, an act of shirk is to slaughter in other than the names of Allah. To slaughter in the name, for instance, of the members of the prophet's family. Or to slaughter to the jinns, as some Muslims do. They, they build a house, they'll slaughter to the, the jinns, and they'll say that if we slaughter this... Uh, sheep to the jinns and therefore they won't come and bother us in the household and so forth. This is shirk. And likewise from shirk is to wear amulets. For instance, one puts an amulet of some sort of saying or something that to protect himself from some harm to come to. These are all acts of shirk. And unfortunately some Muslims due to their ignorance and doing to the, uh, the distance we are now from the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and are resembling the other nations of people, we've fallen into the sin of shirk. So one must repent from the sin of shirk. And this sin of shirk is like kufr. It throws one outside of the fold of Islam. The person who dies upon this sin, Allah will never let him enter into paradise. No matter how much he prayed or fasted or something, or whatever the deed he did. Likewise, the other type of shirk is a minor shirk. It doesn't throw you outside of Islam, but it's very punishable by Allah. And that is to do good deeds to gain the praise of the people. So for instance, you make a nice check to the Islamic center that you pray in, and you announce it to everybody so people will say, Oh, MashaAllah, Brother Muhammad is such a generous man, or Sister Fatima is such a generous lady, in order to gain the praise of the people. This is a type of sin also. Or you show yourself to be very strong in, uh, in defending Islamic causes in order to people say that you're, uh, your, mo- your intention is not only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah will reject your seed and also it is punishable. So we see now two categories that one must repent from. 
the category of kufr, which is one of, for those people who are outside of the fold of Islam, they must repent and enter into the fold of Islam, the category of shirk, and Muslims also fall into shirk. We now come to the third category, which is the category of a nifaq. Now, the category of the nifaq, or hypocrisy, I touched on earlier, and hypocrisy is two types. There is a hypocrisy which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described that these people will be in the lowest depths of the hellfire. And they'll be underneath the Jews and the Christians and the pagans. And those are those people who say that they're Muslims, but in their heart they do not believe in Islam. They do not believe in the Prophet Muhammad And this is manifested in many ways. One way it's manifested is that if you disbelieve in anything the Prophet said. For instance, the Prophet said that on the Day of Judgment, the believers will have to cross a bridge. This bridge, the Prophet described as being as thin as a hair strand and as sharp as the edge of a sword. And that people will pass this bridge according to how many good deeds they had. Some will pass across the bridge like the twinkling of an eye, the blinking of an eye. While others will come as a flash of lightning, because these are not as many. And others will come as a racehorse. And others will come as the speed of a camel, which is not as quick as a horse. And others will run. And others will walk. And others will crawl. And there will be those who will fall off the bridge into hell because of their bad deeds. So somebody who will say that, okay, I believe that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, but I can't accept that there's a bridge over the hellfire. Because I can't imagine a bridge going over the hellfire which is as thin as a hair strand and sharp as a sword. My mind can't imagine that. This is hypocrisy. And this throws a person outside of the fold of Islam. So long as the Prophet told us this, and we're certain that these are his words, the hadith is graded as sahih, authentic, then we must believe in him because he's the messenger of Allah. So even if one says, I accept him as a prophet, but yet I don't want to believe in some of what he says, this will come disbelief. Likewise, similar to this, is to hate anything of Islam. For instance, in your heart, you hate prayer. Or you hate the fact that Islam orders us to be modest, and not to have intermingling, or not to have sexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage. You hate this. You say, this is backwards. Why should we have these practices, ancient moral codes, and so forth? Even though you might say that you like the Islamic religion, but you hate this aspect, this is hypocrisy and throws one outside of Islam. And likewise, the type of hypocrisy is that one wishes that the Muslims are defeated. And one wishes that the disbelievers have the upper hand of the Muslims. One wants, for instance, that the American way of life spreads throughout the world and that the Sharia of Muhammad is no longer uh, rules the world. This type of belief is also hypocrisy and throws one outside of Islam. But there's another type of hypocrisy which does not throw oneself outside of Islam, throws a person outside of the fold of Islam, but it means that the person has not fulfilled his Islam, so therefore he's hypocritical in his deeds. And this is like the Prophet said when he said the sign of the hypocrite is three. That if he speaks, he lies. That if he gives a promise, he breaks it. And that if he gets into an argument, he becomes immoral. So this type of hypocrisy is not like that first type of hypocrisy I was discussing. But the first type of hypocrisy throws you out of the fold of Islam. But the second type of hypocrisy means that your deeds do not match your faith that you profess. And therefore they're just sins and not that type of hypocrisy. The other uh, category of sin, uh, which one must uh, repent uh, from, and you know, as a a side point, if somebody wants to study the subject of hypocrisy, he should just go through the Qur'an and write on a piece of paper all the different verses that Allah describes the hypocrites in. Because Allah has exposed them in many verses in the Quran. In Surah Al-Tawbah, and there's a whole surah called uh, Surah Al-Munafiqeen, and elsewhere in the Quran, especially if you look at the surahs which were revealed in Medina. 
And one can gain a list of over 70 characteristics in the Quran of just the hypocrites. And then see how much hypocrisy now exists in our ummah today. The fourth uh, category of sins that one must uh, uh, repent from is what is known as al-fusuq. And this is uh, also two types. Sometimes in the Quran it means disbelief, but sometimes it just means a type of sin. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says concerning the believers, وَلَكِنِ اللَّهَ حَبَّبِ إِلَيْكُمُ الْإِيمَانِ وَزَيَّنَهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَكَرَّحِ إِلَيْكُمُ الْكُفْرَ وَالْفُسُوخَ وَالْعِسْيَانِ So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the believers that He has made them hate disbelief, and He has made them hate al-fusuq, and He has made them hate al-isyan. And al-isyan uh, is disobedience. And that's the fifth category of sins which one must repent from. The uh, sixth category of, and seventh category of sins that one must uh, repent from is that of an ithmi wal udwan. And an ithmi means any sin which you do uh, towards uh, a sin between you and Allah, while the udwan implies that there is a sin which you do towards the creation. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى وَلَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ So that you come together and assist one another upon al-birr and al-taqwa and do not assist one another upon al-ithm and al-udwan. Al-ithm here means those sins which deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and al-udwan means those sins which you do towards other human beings by cheating them their rights, by not giving their rights fully and other sins which I uh, discussed sins. And then, of course, one either commits that uh, the sin of a sexual act outside of marriage either confirms those sins or belies those sins. And this is a very a, a big problem here, of course, for Muslims in the United States. Maybe not as big as a problem for Muslims living overseas in, in Muslim lands because of the laxity in morality in this country so that people become used to such uh, immorality and do not no longer consider it to be something uh, big indeed. And also among the sins that one must uh, repent from, and this is also a very, very major sin, is the sin of speaking about Allah without knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, قُلْ إِنَّمَا حَرَّمَ رَبِّي الْفَوَاحِشِ مَا ظَهْرَ مِنْهَا وَمَا بَطَنْ وَالْإِثْمُ وَالْبَغِي بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ وَأَنْ تُشْرِكُوا بِاللَّهِ مَا لَمْ يُنَزِّلْ بِهِ سُلْطَانًا وَأَنْ تَقُولُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ مَا لَا تَعْلَمُونَ so here, the Prophet Muhammad is commanded to mention what Allah has forbidden. He says, say, Allah says to the Prophet Muhammad say to Muhammad to mankind, that my Lord has forbidden al-fawahisha, which are those immoral, sex, uh, immoral uh, acts usually dealing with sexual matters. What is apparent from it, what you do in public, and also what you do uh, hidden uh, from the people. And also, al-ithm, which is any sin which does to Allah, uh, toward Allah, wal-baghi, which is like al-ujwan, bighir al-haq, which means any sin you do towards, any transgression you do towards another human being. وَأَنْ تُشْرِكُوا بِاللَّهِ مَا لَمْ يُنَزِلْ بِهِ سُلْطَانًا That you commit shirk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention? وَأَنْ تَقُولُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ مَا لَا تَعْلَمُونَ That you speak about Allah, that which you do not know. And that includes speaking about the Prophet or speaking about Allah's religion, Islam. To give an opinion that Islam permits this or forbids this. To say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's nature is such or such, that you affirm some attributes or deny some attributes. To say that the Prophet sunnah is such or that his way we should live is such. And not having a proof in the Quran and Sunnah is a major sin. And this is something which one has to be careful from. Often Muslims, especially um, Muslims who have lived for some time in the West, uh, have taken some of the characteristics of those who they live around, and this is always 
the case with any human beings, always the minority resembles the majority, and so therefore we want to be express our opinion concerning everything. It's okay to express your opinion concerning worldly matters, but those matters of Sharia, those matters of Allah's religion, you should not speak about Allah without knowledge, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent a book and has sent the Prophet Muhammad to explain that book. And the religion has been complete, and this has been transmitted. Upon us is to submit to that or not. And so it's not a matter where everybody can give his two cents worth concerning that topic. Anyway, um, that in brief is, uh, I have one final thing, is that what is the state of a person after he repents unto Allah? Well, you should know that if you commit a sin, you can be of one of three cases afterwards. Either you can be better, and that's what most people remember, uh, realize, that if you, for instance, you repent, you are now better with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the sense that you do more good deeds. But sometimes you say the same, in the sense that that repentance wasn't strong enough so that your deeds became better and your lifestyle became better. And sometimes you actually are weaker in the sense that your repentance wasn't strong at all. And so therefore that sin causes you to have an effect, has an effect upon you which makes you uh, weaker and worse off than you were initially before you committed that sin. Uh, so with that I... Uh, conclude this brief talk and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us from those who turn unto him into repentance and those who learn his religion and act accordingly aqulu qawli hadha as-safru ali wa lakum subhanaka allahumma wa bihamdika shallu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk so I guess if there's any questions we can uh, answer yes wala alaykum assalam uh, right. Uh, the books um, in Arabic are many. Do you, do you read Arabic or no? I don't think. Okay. So then, therefore, the uh, what I know in the English language, there's a book uh, which is known as um, the Purification of the Soul. All right. Uh, this is a book which was in Arabic, which was translated last year or the year before last into the English language, and it's a good introduction into these topics. It discusses, for instance, the topic of repentance, of fear of Allah, love of Allah, hoping for Allah's mercy. Many of these topics it, dis- it discusses, and if you would like to know how to get a copy, you can uh, speak to me after the talk, inshallah. Okay. Oh, yeah, also, yeah, also there's another book, as uh, my brother reminded me, uh, written by uh, Bilal Phillips, which is known as uh, uh, Repentance Unto Allah, or something of that s- similar title, and uh, perhaps I can uh, help you in getting that book after. So the first book, uh, the initial book, was written by a scholar from Egypt named Ahmed Farid. Ahmed Farid, and was printed uh, in the United Kingdom. And uh, if somebody wants to see how to get a copy of that book, uh, they can speak to myself or to uh, Brother Judith afterwards. Yes, sister. Right. Yeah. If you, uh, if they're leaving of Islamic practices, this is his question was, if for instance, if somebody was born from a Muslim family but does not do anything Islamic, can they still be claimed to be a Muslim? It depends. If their leaving of Islam reaches a degree of apostasy or a ridda, then they can't claim to be their Muslim. They might say it, but they're not considered a Muslim. And in the, if they were living in an Islamic state, they would be given a chance to repent, and otherwise they would be executed. As the Prophet said, مَدَّلَدِينَهُ فَقْتُلُوهُ that whoever changes his religion, kill him. And that's why when the people, uh, uh, the Arab tribes, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, refused to pay the zakah, 
And they said, we only would give the zakat to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and now that Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is dead, we're now going to give it to Abu Bakr. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sent, uh, the Prophet's com- uh, companion Abu Bakr, sent out the armies from Medina to fight them, and kill whoever uh, resisted from paying zakat. So therefore, if somebody falls into one of the a- a- issues of, of, of um, matters of um, apostasy, he is no longer a Muslim, even if he claims that. These issues of apostasy, to be very c- quick about them, of course it's shirk, which I mentioned, okay? To claim that the guidance of anyone is better than the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Or the Sharia of anyone, the law of anyone is better than the law of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. To take the act of sorcery, magic, okay, or to be pleased with that act. To hate anything which Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has sent to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Anything in the Quran is to hate that. To make fun of anything in Islam. Whether uh, it's an obligatory thing or a recommended thing. To turn away from Islam, like you're describing, where you neither want to learn or act upon Islam. These are all uh, acts of uh, apostasy. To believe in the claim of prophethood, or to claim prophethood after the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu To deny the Sunnah, to say that Islam is only the Quran and it's not the Sunnah. These are all matters of apostasy. And there are about 400 matters which are, makes a person an apostate, uh, as written in the books of Fiqh and so forth. Person uh, dies and he's been informed about uh, certain sins that he's been committed, um, and he dies. Uh, um, him dying at, uh, without making this over, uh, this um, is there any atonement for him in a way that people, um, uh, you know, therefore, you know, you know, pray for a lot for him, or should they do it? So the question is, is that when somebody dies upon a sin, unrepentant, what, how can he remove that sin from him? Well, you should know that if a person dies upon a sin and he's unrepentant, if that sin is not shirk or kufr, then it's under Allah's will. Either Allah will forgive him or either Allah will punish him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says in two verses in Surah An-Nisa, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرَ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ That Allah will not forgive the sin of making shirk with him. Those who want to pray to other than Allah, pray to the saints, or pray to the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, or slaughter to anybody other than Allah, or those who want to reject anything of the Islamic religion, and they die upon that sin, Allah will not forgive them that sin. Then Allah says that He forgives any other sin which is less than that, not to everyone, but to whomever He pleases. So therefore, a person who dies unrepentant of a sin, he opens himself up for punishment. Either Allah might forgive him of that sin and let him enter into paradise without punishing him, or Allah might send him to the hellfire. But he'll eventually make it to paradise because he did not die upon shirk, but he because he died upon Tawheed. Even if his faith is as little as a mustard seed. As the Prophet ﷺ said that the people will come out of the hellfire, the believers, and until the last of the believers will come are those who did no good deeds in their life, but they only had the faith of a mustard seed. Okay, and maybe nobody's seen a mustard seed, but you might imagine like a, a, a grain of salt, something small like that in their hearts. Now, as for, then the Prophet ﷺ said, and so then the only ones who will remain in hell are those who the Qur'an has sealed their faith. 
Meaning those who have been mentioned in that, those two verses in the Surah Nisa, that he will not forgive the sin of shirk. So those who die upon shirk, Christians, Jews, pagans, communists, atheists, and those Muslims who die committing shirk and so forth, their, 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 their fate is sealed, no matter who they are. And that's why this sin of shirk must be something which is, has to be rooted out of the world, because it's something which is, leads to eternal damnation in the hellfire. Now also, before coming to the sister's question, inshallah. Uh, no, not shirk, also, we're talking about major shirk. Major shirk. Okay. Now, uh, coming to another point which is important, how does one get, one get his sins removed from him? This is something which is important to know. The first way is through Toba, right? The second way is through doing good deeds. Allah in the Quran says that good deeds, in the hasanat, they, the, the good deeds remove the sayyat, the evil deeds. The third way is through some sort of hardship coming to you. The Prophet told Abu Bakr that even in the thorn of a plant, when it pricks you and it causes you that pain, it removes some sins from you. So the person who becomes sick or has some hardship, can't find a job, it has some poverty in his life, if he's patient and it does not complain to Allah, or does not say, Oh Allah, why did you make me sick? Or, Oh Allah, why did you make me poor? Or somebody has a relative who died, he says, Oh Allah, why did you take him? In other words, he does not show these acts of rebellion to Allah, and he's patient from Allah, so to remove his sins. That's why the Prophet said that the adab of his ummah is in the dunya. That Allah has punishes the believers in this world in order to purify them for the hereafter. Uh, likewise, what removes the sin is the prayers of the righteous upon you when you die. The Prophet said there is not a law of janazah that has 40 righteous men praying for you, except that it will remove your sins, that they'll intercede on your behalf. And this is why it's important to have the company of the righteous and to live amongst righteous people. So that if you die, if Allah takes your soul, there will be 40 righteous people to pray upon you. But I think we'd be hard-pressed to find uh, in America 40 righteous men and women to pray for you. Likewise, in the same vein, is the righteous boy or girl who prays for their parents. The Prophet says, if the son of Adam dies, his good deeds come to an end. Except what? That he has some charity which is continuing. In other words, he did some sort of, he built a well, you know, dug a well, built a road, built a mosque, something which is continuing. Knowledge which the people still benefit from. In other words, he taught people things and that knowledge is transmitted through the generations or through the people. Or what? He has a righteous son or daughter who prays for him. And this shows us the importance of raising our children Islamically. Because that's a way to save our souls and to remove our sins. If their prayers for us after our death will be beneficial. But if your son and daughter never prayed or never fasted and so forth, what benefit will they do to you when you're in your grave? Obviously not much. Likewise, what removes the sin is the punishment of the grave. Because the believers can be punished in the grave. The Prophet said, he passed by two graves of two believers. He said that they are being punished. And they're being punished severely. But the sin that they did is not a big sin that they should have, you know, fallen into. As far as the first one of them, he used to not keep himself clean when he used to urinate. In other words, he was not, uh, 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 he was mindless in that, so he used to, you know, not clean himself properly. And as far as the second one, he used to spread, you know, a falsehood among the people. And, and they mean lie about people and spread backfire amongst the people, gospel amongst the people. And also the Prophet said that the, the sin of usury is punished in the grave. This is a very deadly sin which many Muslims fall into. Likewise, what removes the sin is the hardship of the Day of Judgment. And the Prophet said, and Allah in the Quran mentions, that the Day of Judgment will be for 50,000 years, people will be standing. And the sun will be drawn close to mankind, so it's a distance of one mile, and people will sweat. Some people will sweat 
so much that their sweat will reach their ankles and others to their knees and others to their waist and others to their breasts. And some people will sweat to a degree that their sweat will cover their mouths. They'll be drowning in their sweat because of the, their sins that they did. And so all these hardships that the people face on the Day of Judgment can remove sins from a person. The fear that will be cast in people's hearts. And likewise, when we remove the person a sin is being punished in the hellfire. The sense that Allah puts a person in the hellfire and purifies him of the sin, and then after he's purified, then he goes to paradise. And what removes the sin of a person is a shifa'ah, the intercession of the Prophet Muhammad But this intercession is gained not by asking the Prophet because when they ask the Prophet who are those who will uh, receive your intercession on the Day of Judgment? He says those who have ikhlas to Allah, who purely worship Allah. So those who commit shirk receive no intercession of the Prophet and also, Prophet says that if you say a certain du'a after the adhan, you will gain his intercession. But obviously, it means that you say the du'a and also that you live an Islamic life and you do not commit shirk. I mean, this is understood from that. And likewise, you can gain, uh, remove your sins by Allah's mercy, as I mentioned in the verse, that He forgives the sin of whoever He pleases. So, Allah, with some people, just might forgive their sins. So, these are about 10, 11 ways that a person's sins can be removed from him. I think uh, the brother had a question. Uh, this is brother, then your sister, Sean. Excuse me. Um, well, I have two questions. Uh, first one is, can you repent for a premeditation? In other words, if I go out tonight and I know I'm going to do something, um, can I repent for that? And the second one is, um, when do you repent? Should you repent for fear of what's going to happen at the end, like the judgment, or do you repent because, um, well, do you repent because you're fearful of what's going to happen, or because, um, Let's say you don't really believe that, I know you testified, but if you, you really don't believe that it was, it was bad, and then you may do it again, you should right. still repent No, I, as far as the first part of the question, can you repent for a premeditated sin? In the sense that, if you want to repent for a premeditated sin, you haven't done that sin, you can't repent for it. After you do that sin, of course, you, you, you can still be accepted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, provided you fulfill those conditions, which is what? You're remorseful for what you did, you drop that sin, and you never return back to that sin. That will remove your sin for you. You have to fulfill those three conditions. And if that sin is, deals with another human being, you have to return that right back to that human being if you can. Now, as far as a person's uh, feelings, I didn't quite understand, but let me just mention this point, and perhaps it will be beneficial. A person, when he worships Allah Taala, which we are created for, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created jinn nor mankind except to worship me. Worship has three pillars upon it. The first is love of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And that is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you and His blessings are innumerable and the greatest blessing is that of Islam because this is what saves you from the hellfire. The second aspect of worship is mercy. That you seek Allah's mercy. Hope for His mercy. In other words, Allah has described Himself that He is forgiving and that He is merciful and that He overlooks. So you seek that mercy. And the third aspect of worship is fear. Because He's a judge and he's stern in punishment and he's severe in punishment so therefore one must have his worship must be based upon those three pillars and that's from Surah Al-Fatiha Allah says Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen praise Allah who is the Lord of all being and Allah describes himself as a Rabb which includes the meaning of giving and of his so if Allah gives you something you love him for that he gave you Islam then Allah says Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim he describes himself with two names which mean his mercy so you seek that mercy from Allah then he says, Maliki Yomadin, 
that he is the judge of the day of judgment. So there's a day of judgment which you'll be judged for. So you fear that day. And that's fear. And then what did he say? You alone we worship. Meaning out of what? Out of love, out of hope of his mercy, out of fear of his punishment. So therefore, a believer's heart should be like that. Between love, hope, and mercy. Uh, love, hope, and fear. One should not worship Allah only out of love. Like some people say, well, I love Allah. But love in itself without obedience is not true love. And that's why Allah in the Quran says, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يَحْرِكُمُ اللَّهَ Say, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi to mankind, if you truly love Allah, then follow me. I mean, obey me. Allah will love you and forgive you your sin. And likewise, some people worship Allah out of mercy. They say, well, you know, Allah is merciful. Yes. Allah says, tell my slaves that I am the, uh, merciful. And also tell them that I'm very severe in punishment. And sometimes people worship Allah only out of fear. And these are very few people. But they become remorseful. And they do not think that Allah will forgive them. And therefore, this is also uh, wrong. So we must worship a lot of all three matters. Love, hope, and fear. My sister's one. Uh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. Right. Right. So, yeah, Farsi, yeah, they, they, they will get a reward. Right. No, to pay charity for one's, uh, on behalf of his parents is is good. Okay? Any good deed that you do and that your parents taught you about, the parents receive a reward for that. But the best one is the prayer. I mean, I know that the common practice is that, for instance, if somebody's parents die, they slaughter, uh, like, for instance, a sheep and they feed the poor and so forth. This is good. I mean, there's no harm in that. But the best way that a person can be uh, to ask for his parents is through praying for his parents. That's because the Prophet is going to mention that specifically. Other forms of charity is fine. And also, uh, to pray, and to be righteous towards one's parents, is to be righteous towards your parents' friends. In other words, if you know that your father had a friend, or your mother had a friend, to be righteous towards them, is also to act righteous, as to be righteous towards uh, one's uh, parents while they're alive. Yes? Sure. No, we shouldn't say that. And the standing for the uh, passing of the janazah, it is said that the Prophet when he stood was because he was uh, because of the fear. You know what I'm saying? He saw something which was shocking. I mean, death, and so forth. Therefore, they stood up. But it's not necessarily a practice that we should stand for the passing. Although some scholars have interpreted the hadith like that, it seems that that's the weaker interpretation of the hadith. Indeed, the Prophet Sallallahu one uh, Bedouin came to the Prophet Sallallahu and he said, and the, he said, the Prophet Sallallahu taught, taught me that whenever I pass the graves of the disbelievers, I should say, وَبَشِّرَكُمْ بِنَّا I give you glad tidings of the hellfire. And then he said that the Prophet Sallallahu gave me something very weighty to do. Because as a Bedouin, he used to travel throughout Arabia. So whenever they would be passing by graves, they used to have to say that. So the, the point is, is that the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and this is one of the forgotten practices of Islam, is that really when one passes by the graves of the disbelievers, he should give them glad tidings of the hellfire. And if anybody reflects upon that, that's enough to prod his soul to 
be different than them and not to die in their state. Uh, I'll come to you, sir, and just the sister, I think, you. That's not hypocrisy. And we should understand that the commands of Allah and the commands of the Prophet Muhammad are two types. There are obligatory commands that if we do not fulfill and obligatory prohibitions that if we do not leave, we're sinful for. And there are those commands and there are those prohibitions which are recommended and encouraged that if we do not do them, we're not necessarily sinful, but our degree of faith is not that high. So we should always hope to try to reach that, but we won't be held accountable for that. And I'll give you an example. The Prophet uh, teaching us that we should pray certain rak'ahs of prayer outside of the five obligatory prayers. Those are not obligatory for us to do. Now, we should always strive to pray those prayers, but if there was a Muslim who doesn't pray those extra prayers outside of the five obligatory prayers, he's not sinful. Okay? And likewise, he's not a hypocrite in, in, in any way. Now, if he denies those prayers, and he says, I don't believe in them because the Prophet said it, and since it's not in the Quran and I'm going to accept it, that becomes disbelief and hypocrisy and a person falls out of the fold of Islam. Yeah, non-Muslim. I mean, outside of the fold, he's no longer a Muslim. He's like a whatever religion he's defined. In terms of prodding somebody, they said, so-and-so gave $5,000 and we'd like you to you know, the point is, is that it opens up the door for Satan. You know, and especially if that person is in your presence. The Prophet ﷺ said when somebody prays another person in his uh, presence, not praising the Prophet, but praising another Muslim, he said, you slaughtered him. You slaughtered him. So, if you were to say, oh, what a fine gentleman this is, and he's done so and so and so and so and so and so, you slaughtered him. So, we shouldn't do that. Now, if that person was not in our presence, let's say he's moved to another city, and we say, there used to be a brother who lived amongst us who of his good deeds that he used to give so much money and we wish you would resemble him, that's okay because you're not praising that person in the sense in front of his, in his, front of his face. And indeed the Prophet ﷺ told us, he said, whoever praises you in your face, take his hand and throw it in his face, you know. So, I mean, the, we shouldn't praise people in front of one of them. And there should, there's not necessarily a sin in that. But at the same time, uh, we can use the examples of, of charity and of good deeds of the earlier Muslims, you know, is more prodding and more beneficial. So, if we want to ex- explain charity, we can explain the charity of Abu Bakr, the charity of Uthman, you know what I'm saying, and so forth, rather than using examples of people who are alive today. We don't know if they did those acts truly for Allah or not. But I, I don't see how we can say necessarily it's a sin if the person is not in our presence. And Allah knows best. Yeah, it's, it, it can lead that person to arrogance. I mean, Allah knows if that person will necessarily fall into that, but it's you've opened the door for Satan to fool that. So you shouldn't praise a person in his in his uh, in his face in his presence. Yes, sir. 
serves a person and obeys the orders of someone, sometimes it's required and it, you get rewarded for it. For instance, if the person orders you to do something which is religious, right? If your father orders you to stand up and pray, that's, to obey that order is a reward, to be, uh, will be rewarded by a law. I, I know, I know, but I, I'm going to come to that and like that. And also sometimes, if you were to obey somebody in what entails disobedience to a law, that's sinful. And this also is two types. Sometimes it leads to being outside of the fold of Islam. And sometimes it's a sin of the major sin, and it doesn't lead to major shift. And I'll give you an example. If one disobeys uh, the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he feels that the commandments of somebody else is better than the Sharia of Allah, for instance, he believes that the code of that society, which is not based upon the Sharia, is better than the Sharia of Allah, or that they're equal, or that it's up to him, or he seeks to uh, actively fight the commands of Allah, then that is obviously a fool's himself outside the fold of Islam. But if he does those deeds like killing a Muslim or doing some sort of evil and he knows that he's sinful for that act, then his act is just like the person who murders and who steals and so forth. There's no difference in the fact that he served a regime or he did it upon his own volition. It's all sin, but it hasn't reached the level of disbelief. So we have to then therefore distinguish between those acts, those sins which makes a person come outside of the fold of Islam and those acts which do not make a person come outside full of Islam. And usually the way to distinguish that is the matter of belief. What was the motivation behind that? Somebody believes that serving a regime with something is better than uh, uh, the law of Allah, or it's equal to the law of Allah, or that it's up to him whether he wants to follow the law, law, the law or not, then this person is outside of the fold of Islam. If a person feels that one must obey Allah and one must apply the Sharia, but yet does that and does not do that, he's the same as a Muslim, who knows that Allah has commanded him something and is sinful for that. That's a sin, not necessarily outside of the fold of Islam. I think we have one more question, sister, inshallah. And I'll come to you, brother. Yes? You said it's very important for the prayers from the children, the and my second question, I just read that the Fatiha is considered as a Fatiha. Is that true? Yeah. Is that true? No. As far as the first part of the question about uh, prayers, uh, what type of prayers for it means any type of dua you make. Anytime you raise your hand, you know. And obviously if you do it in the last part of the night, the last, the last sort of the night, this is more beloved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you do it on the Mount of Arafah when, on, during, on, on Hajj time, this is more beloved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are certain times when du'a is better than other times. But one should make du'a for his parents, I mean, throughout the day. He shouldn't just say just during those good times. As far as the question of reading Surah Al-Fatiha uh, for the dead, this is an innovation. And we should understand what does the word innovation or bid'ah means. It means any act of drawing closer to Allah, which does not have its precedence, it's not found in the Qur'an or in the hadith of the Prophet So, the, in the time of the Prophet they never, he never commanded, nor did they encourage, nor did the Muslims ever, when somebody used to die, say, al-Fatiha and read for the person. Okay? 
So this practice, which has been coming to the Islamic religion, is something that the people entered into religion centuries after the Prophet Sallallahu uh, died, and therefore it's an innovation. So if we, when somebody dies, we should give him those rights by mentioning him well, by seeking forgiveness for him. That's why the Prophet Sallallahu said, look at the, the, the sunnah of the Prophet. That they buried a man in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu the hadith of Sahih Muslim, and he said, ask Allah to uh, keep him firm now. In other words, to make him answer the questions properly, because now the angels are asking him. Now the angels are asking him. In other words, when the angels come and ask you, who is your Lord? And what is your religion? Who is your prophet? So he said, ask for your brother a sibat, that, you know, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows him to answer the right questions. The Prophet didn't say, read al-Fatiha for him. And also when Aisha asked the Prophet what should I say when I go to the grave? He taught her to say a certain dua. He didn't tell her to read al-Fatiha or so forth. So, in other words, if we want to benefit our soul, and if we want to benefit our, our brothers and, uh, in Islam, and sisters in Islam who have passed away, we should then seek the means that Allah has legislated and the means that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu has legislated. And the way to do that is by learning, by reading hadith. You know, one can then learn about the different sunnahs of the Prophet Sallallahu and we should do that. And for those of us who have fallen to some uh, acts of bid'ah, the best way to remove that is through education, I mean, being kind to the people and to explain to them. And usually people want to do good, and if they know that they're doing something wrong, they'll give it up. Allah knows best. Um, uh, Allahumma fur li akhwanina alladhina sadaquna bil iman and I don't uh, excuse me safwa alafi the dua is assalamu alaykum dan mu'mini wa inna insha'allah bikum lahiqun nasallahu lana wa lakum al-afiyah that's the dua I think the final question is I think oh, your question I'll, I'll, I'll do that in a second I'll ask those questions The point is, is that when somebody does any action, okay, or leaves an action, you know, refuses to do an action, obviously he has to have an evidence from the Quran or the Hadith that impels him to do that action or to leave that action. So the burden of proof is upon that person who does the action. I mean, if now I want to read Fatiha after a dead person or make sit in a circle to make it up, the burden of proof lies upon me to prove that the Prophet did that action. And likewise, if I tell somebody that this is not permissible, the burden of proof lies upon me to show them how. So the evidence is with the Quran and the Hadith. Uh, as far as my name, I, I guess this is a lesson, not that important, but my name is, uh, okay, my name is Ali Tamimi. Ali Tamimi. And, uh, I mean, I, I live in uh, Falls Church, so, I mean, if you can contact me either through my home, 379-9783, or you can contact me through the Society for Adherence to Sunnah. I'm uh, the neighbor of Brother Safi Khan, we live in the same building, so if you ask him, he'll know how to get him.
into contact with me. So. Think about